listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. We have all these opportunities to uh, actually meet our life from a space of, uh, of openness. And we tend to meet life at a place of closure. We tend to uh, do a really good job of filtering much of our experience. And there's nothing wrong with this. But if we can begin to get comfortable with meeting life as it is, what we can start doing is quite literally leading a life that is undefended, a life that isn't uh, divided. And if we're leading a life that isn't divided, we can lead lives of fearlessness. We can be indeed accountable to everything that is going on as it is going on without running and hiding. My brother and I went this last, uh, last Saturday morning into Berkeley to watch uh, World Cup. And we had the United States playing and it was really, really, really fun to kind of just be in this, this, this group of people who are all quite celebratory and quite passionate about their commitment to a particular identity and so forth. Um, and I happened to be sitting near a table of South Africans. And uh, the South Africans actually were really a fascinating mix of ethnicities. And they were all students at, uh, at Cal and were, were you know, kind of talking and so forth. And I actually am very biased. I find the South African accent to be among the coolest accents on the planet. And so uh, Mitch and I were sitting there enjoying our, uh, our, our beer and our view of the, this big screen TV. And so we had these great, great seats and so forth. Anyway, these guys started talking about Mandela. And it was so fascinating to hear. I just wanted to be a fly on the wall. I just wanted to hear where they were going in relationship to Nelson Mandela, who I count as one of the great contemporary sages of the, the you know, last, last 50 years. What's more, it's not just that he was someone who had been uh, kind of beaten down into this space of, of surrender, but that he was also able to take that quality of surrender and then work it into um, a political structure. That he was able to forgive. He took total accountability for his own interior. That he wasn't about blaming. That his orientation was indeed about forgiveness, about openness. Oh, this is the, this is the way it is. I'm not going to hold any ill will against anyone. Even those that have imprisoned me, even those that have been torturing me for 20 some odd years, 30 some odd years, however long it was. 
and you could hear from the the whites at the table. And there's a group a group of them, um, uh, fairly small. I guess it was what six six people or so. You could just hear this amazing, amazing praise for this guy uh, on all sorts of different levels. And so I was quite was quite taken with that. It, it tended to reify a story that I'd already had kind of in my head, but I felt it was a value to see not only Mandela or people throughout history like him, but to see ourselves indeed as having that capacity to be utterly accountable for our interior. Totally, totally, totally accountable for how we meet the world, that it's nobody else's fault. No matter what, it's nobody else's fault. And when you take this blame kind of out of the mix, especially if it's self-blame, once we take this out of the mix, there is a veil that's peeled away that reveals something quite remarkable that each of us has at our disposal. And that is the ability, indeed the gift, the gift of intimacy that we can give to this life and to this world. So in our stillness tonight, can you meet the world? Can you meet your experience totally? I know I kind of blab on about this a great deal, but take it as best you can, whatever's showing up, be it good, bad, or kind of in between. Can you just be there with it? Whatever struggle is going on, ah, there's struggle. Let the awareness of the struggle show you that you are actually free of the struggle. Let your awareness of the success show you that actually that success is not who you are. Just like the struggle is not who you are, nor is the success that there's something deeper, something beyond, something that is aware of everything that's playing out. That there is indeed spirit in action in all moments that if we can just rest in the present moment, paying attention to our breath, paying attention to our thought, paying attention to any and all feelings, then what we have is an opportunity to actually deepen this very life that we lead. Shall we sit? this theme of uh, Mandela, um, this theme of uh, kind of openness, being undivided. I uh, recently saw the 
Clint Eastwood film Invictus, which I thought was a, you know, was a decent film. Um, but the story, the story behind it, the uh, South African rugby team, the Springboks, uh, these guys that actually went and won the Rugby World Cup, was the sport of the whites in South Africa. Soccer, on the other hand, was the sport of the blacks. And Mandela made this incredible bit of uh, political calculus where he said, we are going to defend the Springboks, we're going to defend this rugby team, and we're going we're to carry ourselves right into the World Cup and we're going to win it. And that, of course, meant that you would have to play against New Zealand. And the New Zealand team, actually called the All Blacks, uh, they're, the, they're the team you never want to play because they will not just beat you, but they will actually physically devour you and then eat you after the game. <laughs> So that, that was outlawed, I think, two years ago. But uh, the, uh, the, uh, the All Blacks are something to see, actually, if you ever get a chance. And I happen to be kind of a goofy sports guy, so I'm, I'm really biased. But anyway, Mandela decided to you know, make sure that the, uh, the Springboks were actually going to, that these guys were going to play. And he just got right behind him and said, look, your, your entire country is with you and so forth. And it really helped galvanize a forgiveness. It was a it was a pressure point that he brilliantly played, and in in uh, there's a uh, a moment between uh, Mandela and um, the captain of the rugby team. Mandela, by the way, played by, of course, Morgan Freeman, who I guess if you play God and you play <laughs> Mandela and you play these enough, you pretty much you have credibility. Anyway, he had this. Um, uh, beautiful presence to him on screen, as he normally does, but he gave the captain of the rugby team, played by Matt Damon, a copy of a poem that he would read in prison that helped inspire this, this dedication to something that is bigger than who he was as an individual. Now, it's really important to recognize that um, William Ernest Henley, the gentleman who wrote Invictus uh, in the late, late 19th century, um, there was, we, we could interpret this in deeply egoic ways. But what was interesting when, it, as I viewed the film, I applied it to Mandela's existence. It was actually about what was beyond the contraction of selfhood how we make a certain kind of accountability or generate a certain accountability within and meet the world, whatever shows up with that certain accountability, with that dedication to what is and with the fire that it takes to generate that intimacy. So it went something or goes like this. Um, out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit, from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. 
It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And that we could carry that type of dedication into spiritual work. That we could do that is a blessing. Any of us could do this. Any of us could. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of whether we are living out suburban bliss, whatever that might be, or we are chipping stones on Robben Island. This capacity is within each of us if we have the courage to take, take account, to be accountable for this very life that we lead. So I kind of go with this, uh, your, your ability, my ability, everyone's ability to be radically honest with what's facing them allows for them to recognize that there is unity as opposed to separation. Separation tends to put us into a situation where we run scared. And when we run scared, if we actually have a you know, fear-based way of living, something's going to happen, something may happen, something in the future is going to wipe out what I have, you know, this type of thing. If we are in that space continually, what it does is it tends to lend itself to the structuring of an identity. And an identity always shows up as, as uh, the, the defensive wall, or if you will, the mask between in here and out there. Now, of course, what's behind the mask is infinite and always beautiful and looks precisely the same in all things. But getting to that place can be very difficult. It takes the kind of strength that William Ernest Henley was talking about, that kind of resolve. It takes sitting on the cushion it takes meeting our life with this radical honesty. But if we can do this, if we can be radically honest, what happens is desire tends to weaken. Whatever our addiction might be, whether it's something obvious like cigarettes, heroin, alcohol, or something not so obvious, selfhood, another person, an ideology, a tribe, Go Bears. Oops. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I mean, this is, this is a really, really powerful thing for us to look at. Our inner state depends on nothing other than what we cling to. Our inner state depends on precisely nothing. Nothing other than what we cling to. So clinging to others, clinging to self, clinging to mind, to body, to beliefs, to tribe, begets an inner versus outer type of experience in life. 
resistance and negativity arise. Eckhart Tolle uh, brilliantly calls it the pain body. The pain body arises the minute, the minute, the second we start resisting what is. Now, the obvious question to arise for most people is, oh, okay, great, so we walk around all la, 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 everything's fine. It's actually not true. It's not that everything is fine. It's that everything is. How are you going to meet it with generosity? How are you going to meet it with integrity? How are you going to be radically honest about what is going on? Those questions help to inspire kind of a path correction wherever we might be. So, let there be no hiding from any aspect of life. In addition to recognizing that your inner state depends on nothing other than your clinging, let there be no hiding. Don't dodge. Face everything. Do not avoid. Now, this is hard, okay, because we, in many cases, we spend our entire lives figuring out how to avoid and manipulate perfectly how to get exactly what we want out of a situation, how we seduce what we want from life. Be it a person, be it an idea, be it any type of situation. How do we get our needs met? And it looks like they're not going to be met, so how am I going to do it? And then playing this I want, this desire card, which indeed is part of what makes life spicy, but when the desire becomes something we cling to, then it becomes something, instead of being spicy, it becomes something like over-salted. If you've ever had prawns that have been over-salted, for instance, okay, they're just too spicy, okay? They've been kind of killed of their natural beauty, and a little, little salt is kind of nice. But we can overdo it. And so when desire gives way to must-have, we are then not able to meet our life with the kind of radical honesty that I'm speaking of. Not hiding from any aspect of life takes place on two levels, internally and externally. So if we were going to look at not hiding from any aspect of the internality of being, of ourselves, or what we think the self is, this means recognizing what is light in us, what shines, and also recognizing what is dark, recognizing our shadow, not running from the shadow. And one of the great uh, uh, unfortunate aspects of meditation is that the meditation will not necessarily get any of us any closer to recognizing, unpacking, or making friends with our shadow elements. I think it's actually deeply incomplete in that way. So what do I mean by shadow element? Well, a shadow element to you, based on where Carl Jung kind of went with this whole, this, whole, uh, this whole description, is anything in you you don't like. That's the overarching way of defining it, but it can get really, really specific. It's the qualities in you that go dark, okay? Either they become like depressed dark or dark as in I want to kill. And maybe they're not at that level. 
Maybe they're far more subtle. Maybe there's a quasi-meanness. Maybe there's, you get the idea? Maybe there's something in your being that you are running from that you want to deny because that's not the way a good Buddhist behaves. Or a good Christian behaves. It doesn't take more than two weeks worth of news to uncover what people who really consider themselves to be good Christians or good Buddhists or good Muslims do that is fairly dark. Buddhism is not, is not free of this. Buddhist cult decided to gas the Tokyo subway. Don't forget that. Okay? I mean, it's really easy for us to get kind of smug. Yeah, well, we're Buddhists. That means we don't. We don't yeah, except like the first kamikaze pilots were all Buddhist monks. Oh, yeah, but aside from that, <laughs> be careful. In other words, being really clear about what it is that our shadow elements represent and how they arise. And you know what? They're part of you. They're part of you. They're part of me. They're part of all beings. <clears throat> Make friends with them by studying those aspects of being. Become very intimate with them. And this is where meditation can help because meditation gives you the kind of stability to actually meet these aspects of selfhood that you've been spending years and years pushing away. Stop that. Being radically honest means, like I said, not hiding from anything. And that means no longer closing that door or, you know, closet door, whatever it is. Wherever you keep those shadow elements of self under the stairs, whatever it is, wherever you keep them, begin to know them. In knowing them, in becoming intimate with them, they will lose their strength. They will lose their hold because they are now made conscious. In making them conscious, there's no more mystery. And without any mystery, there's no more stickiness. It becomes clear. Also recognize internally, and this is, this is a very natural, spontaneous arising once we start actually looking very carefully at our shadow. Once we begin to make friends with the shadow, we start recognizing that people on the outside of who we perceive ourselves to be, the ones we don't like especially, are merely letting, we're, we're merely recognizing their shadows playing with our own their unconsciousness meeting our own. It allows for us to develop much greater empathy, much greater compassion with how people are meeting their world, with how we are actually meeting our world. We start seeing that the me versus you war that traditionally most people orient their lives around no longer exists as something we need to fight. It becomes a choice. An us versus them mentality begins to fall away as well. And we're accountable to that. We start seeing, you know what? Yeah. I can see in myself tendencies. I can see in myself these tendencies that I get mad at other people for having. Huh. Exploring that allows for us to become much more whole, much more complete, much less divided. Externally, 
how do we show ourselves to be radically honest? Internally, we, we pretty much make friends with all aspects of who we are, and then we begin to start seeing that in others. Our reaction to them is forever changed. Externally, we begin to show up as expressions of honesty. We no longer try to take what is not freely given. We no longer manipulate. We no longer kill. I want to be careful how we use this particular um, particular uh, verb, but killing means we no longer take life away from something. Whether it's uh, mosquitoes, which I will let you all know, I will kill if I can. I'm a bad Buddhist that way. Anything that sucks my blood or my children's blood, I will kill. So, so that means mosquitoes and vampire bats. Uh, but all kidding aside, I mean, it's really looking very, very carefully. What does it mean? What does it mean to speak ill of another? What does it mean to harbor ill will? What does it mean to misuse your sexuality? What does it mean to misuse intoxicants of any nature, be they alcohol, drug, or dharma? We start developing a real interesting relationship with our own spiritual path as it relates to the bigger picture because we start seeing ourselves as not only part of, but also the complete work. That masterpiece becomes a reflection of our own life. Next, we can take full responsibility of our circumstances. Know what you can do, what you can't do, and that you have enough wisdom to know the difference. To quote the 12-step poem that I love so much. Do you have the wisdom to know the difference? That comes very naturally from living a life that's predicated, built, and oriented around radical honesty. Do you know that your circumstance is not the same thing as you? That you are not your circumstance? Just like you are not just your body, you are not your thoughts, you are not your mind, all that stuff changes, all that stuff flows, all that stuff is in perpetual and total flux. That you're something more than just your circumstance, your life situation, if you want to call it that. Know that you are not just what is small, but you're what is small and what is beyond that small. You're not just a small self, but you're also a big self that includes the small self. Know that in every circumstance you have three choices. Every circumstance offers you three choices. You can leave the situation. You can work to change it. Or you can stick it out. No matter what you decide, though, bring radical honesty into that. 
Radical honesty will give you the courage to leave. It'll give you the wisdom to know how to most effectively change something that might potentially be changed. And it will also give you the requisite surrender necessary to meet a situation that you're not that high on. It'll give you kind of that resolve in all cases. It allows for an appropriate response to show up no matter what's going on in our circumstantial world, in the real world, so to speak. And the last aspect of accountability that I wanted to share is actually fairly quick and fairly obvious. You need to be, and I need to be, and everyone else needs to be accountable to the fact that it's never, ever anyone else's fault. This is very difficult for people to hear. Egos aren't into this particular teaching. <laughs> but it's never anybody else's fault. Your inner state is never predicated, can never be predicated on anybody else's activity. You have to choose it. Eleanor Roosevelt said so brilliantly, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Being radically honest means that you never offer up that consent. To flip it, no one can make you feel superior without your consent. Same rules apply. Don't go there. Being radically honest means that you start recognizing that there is not really a difference between self and other, or at least what does exist as a difference between self and other is fairly illusory. We begin to see past that as we still our minds, as we become clear. And remember that the unconscious aspects of us they all have a goal. They all have a reason for being. The unconscious aspects of ourselves are desperate to keep us unconscious. Living a life of accountability means that we begin to see through that. It means that instead of going after blame, instead of pointing fingers, okay, we begin to forgive. We begin to actually live from a place of giving, of generosity, of forgiveness. It's no one's fault. Yes, but I've been wronged. How long are you going to carry that? How's that working out for you? Well, it's killing me. Yeah. And this is where our practice informs a life. It's getting to the place where you can begin to actually really look at that. Have you been wronged? Maybe you have. Are you ready to forgive it? Are you ready to let it go? Because when you are, all roads open up to you. And paradoxically, every single one of these roads leads into the heart of awakening. All you got to do is take the steps.
easy on you tonight. <laughs> Any questions? I have a question. Yes. You said, um, and I know you won't remember saying this, but Kinda. <laughs> Is it the same thing if you were to say that even the conscious sex aspects of ourselves want something? No. Great question. So I'm going to repeat the question. The question went like this. I said that the conscious aspect, the unconscious aspects of ourself wants one thing, and that's for us to remain unconscious. And then Gina's question was, is it this, does the conscious aspect of self want something, for, right? The answer is, drum roll, no. <laughs> the conscious aspects of selfhood, the open, the totally undivided selfhood has no requirements. But there are conscious aspects of ourselves that want something and that's freedom. The conscious aspects don't want freedom. Freedom doesn't want freedom. Right. But is that the same thing as saying the conscious aspects? The conscious aspects of self are free. Okay? Therefore, their want doesn't exist. Their unimpeded reality brings about shine. Does that make sense? They just are what they, they are. what they are. And as a matter of fact, the spiritual path, what's so, so fascinating about it, is that it seems as if the natural impulse for the universe is to evolve. And spiritual seekers who ultimately become spiritual finders are people who have walked right into that flow and then recognized, oh, that didn't cost anything except everything. Right? And then that, that evolutionary impulse begins to just override all aspects of being. So that we become so deeply in tune with the one song, the universe, that there is no real turning back. We can try, but it's just, it's like getting in very small pants. <laughs> or something. Really uncomfortable. I mean, you can still go through the world, but you're just, really, you have horribly small pants. How are you? Fine. You know, have a seat. You know, something like that, at least. Yes, sir. The middle part? <laughs> Yes. Let's see. Yeah, pants. Before the pants, or? Yeah. 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 Over that dialogue again in a different tact. I was. Oh, good luck. I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I, I got. I'm really bad at that. I, I, I uh, when I'm sitting up here, it's not real. Uh, if you did know. If I, if I. Funny. I think. Let's see. We were talking about. We were talking about. Before pants, it was getting into this stream or the evolutionary flow of the universe and that that impulse actually is very, very natural but it's not something that the conscious aspects of ourselves want it's something that they are 
the unconscious aspects of ourself want us to remain unconscious, so they will usually turn that whole spiritual entry into the stream of the universe. They'll turn it into something that it's not. It's impossible. I'll do it in another lifetime. I'll do, I mean, there are all sorts of really great, great ones. I get enlightenment when I, uh, you know, see my child play soccer. Or, okay, all, all good. They're all fine. But we're talking about something different, something that's not about any type of aggrandizement or boost or diminish, diminishing. We're talking about something that's absolutely expansive in all directions. It's an omnidirectional evolutionary burst so that we actually begin to embody a big bang. That was the middle part. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yes. The unconscious, uh, the, just the ego. The unconscious, yes. Ego, small self, shadow, persona, image, preference, all those, all those things that are about grasping, attachment, attachment right? All those things that are about. Uh, that's all, that's all, the, uh, and, and our tendency to lean into that is what keeps us small. Yes, and that process is complete when that watching, that recognition diminishes its pull on us enough to where it's no longer needed. It's no longer needed. What is no longer needed? Anything. Nothing needed because we are full, right? We're, we're fulfilled, which allows us then to forgive. Why? Because we are utterly, completely, and totally abundant. There's nothing lacking. How can anyone diminish you from that space? They can't. And it's not because you're like, <laughs> I'm fulfilled. Instead, it's because there's nothing lacking. I can, I can barely hear you, pal. Sorry, oblivious. What word would I use? Yeah, because to, in one sense, you're oblivious. By being oblivious, the forgiveness just comes right out. You're oblivious to anything that happens. Oblivious, our oblivious nature mm -hmm. is part and parcel with our unconsciousness. Our complete, utter, and total participation is from a place of the opposite of obliviousness. It's total consciousness. It's awareness. It's presence. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what I was looking for, awareness. Awareness. And when, mm -hmm. but being aware and being so aware that we can even look at the permutations of awareness. We can see that awareness of awareness becomes consciousness we can start seeing that the only thing that is never not there is awareness. It's what's left when all else falls away. The other way of describing that awareness is emptiness. Except awareness actually is this infinite container of all, isn't it? Can you use a sports metaphor since you brought up? Sports metaphor, sure. Um, yeah. I thought you'd appreciate it. <laughs>
Yeah, he was in the gap. He was in the, in other words, he was utterly, completely, and totally present. And he was not, and this is what we speak about by being accountable. When we get out of our own way, when there's no longer, there's no longer, um, uh, in, in Landon Donovan's case, when it wasn't about thinking, oh, there's an opening, here's the ball, here's my foot, I think I'll kick it. There's no way that that actually can represent any type of flow. It's a staccato mind orientation of an arising situation. And instead, what did he do? He responded with total generosity. Unless you are the opposing team, <laughs> then you look at it as being somewhat threatening. But then again, that's what sport is. The Vuvuzelas? Yes. The Vuvuzelas are the sound of the Big Bang. Yes. <laughs> you just might have some preferences around them. Yeah, uh, I actually would say this, and here's here's the really cool the cool challenge. Every one of us will have a Landon Donovan moment, and you know when that moment is. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Gotcha. Respond appropriately to your life. Thank you so much for coming tonight.